Welcome to BuildCast, where we delve into the backstories of experts and other players in the built environment to reveal their journey and how they got built. Join us in our conversation to learn from their life experiences, to be the catalyst for innovation, and to make sustainable building mainstream building. Now here is your host and the principal thinker at Build Tank Inc., Robbie Schwartz. Gayathri Vijaykumar is a principal mechanical engineer at Stephen Winter Associates. For over 17 years, she has specialized in evaluating residential and multifamily buildings with an emphasis on high-performance construction and renewable energy systems. Early in her career, Gayathri provided technical assistance to sustainability projects by performing energy modeling and conducting cost-benefit analysis on energy-efficient measures in both new and existing residential construction. She leveraged that experience and truly found her niche, consulting and developing programs, codes, and standards for organizations like Energy Star, ResNet, and the International Code Council. This includes work on the EPA Energy Star Multifamily New Construction Program, as well as the Indoor Air Plus Program being chair of ResNet Standard Development Committee 300, and most recently being a voting member of the 2024 IECC Residential Consensus Committee. Gayathri is one of those rare people who can organize a ton of complex information in her head, see a path forward to consensus, and help guide those who are willing to follow on a successful journey moving the construction industry forward. I enjoyed this conversation with Gayathri, and I hope you will as well. Hi, this is Ravi Schwarz with the BuildCast, and today I am welcoming Gayathri Vijaykumar. And first thing I have to say, did I pronounce your name correctly? You were close. So it's Gayathri Vijaykumar. So I've heard that the rhyming scheme is what helps people get it right. So the Gaia part is what tricks people. Um, But Gaia rhymes with Maya. That's my daughter's name. So Gaia, Maya, and you just add three. So Gayathri Vijaykumar. Great. Well, thank you for for that. I know that's um, that's um, I don't know difficult to hear people not not pronounce it correctly. So I I appreciate that. Um, so you work with Stephen Winters and Associates. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Stephen Winters Associates and and what uh, your organization's all about? Sure. So it's Stephen Winter. So Stephen Winter is the man, the myth. He uh, organizes company back about, we just celebrate our 50th anniversary. Um, So Stephen Winter created this firm. It's basically a whole building design firm. So we have offices in Washington, DC, New York City, uh, Boston, and Connecticut. And we also have, you know, folks that work from home now. And so we have folks in New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, all over the place. But our our main offices are those areas. So primarily mid-Atlantic, Northeast, And so my area has always been residential, but we have a lot of people working in our commercial um, groups. We have an accessibility group. And so it's all kinds of buildings, making them better, whether it's through energy efficiency, sustainability, or accessibility. Um, We're basically consultants helping clients such as architects, developers, um, and in some cases, code development and uh, program development. Yeah. And how many people now are, are with Stephen Winter? We are about 130 people at this point. Wow. 
Uh, is most of your work through governmental programs and with the Department of Energy, or do you have private uh, private people that are coming to to you, developers and whatnot? I would say actually more of our work is through private companies. So, you know, most of our team works with developers, architects. Usually somebody is coming to our company looking for consulting advice on how to get their buildings to be high performance. And so usually it's because they're trying to go after incentives um, or they're looking for the marketing edge of, you know, pursuing the next best label. So usually they're coming to us for that reason. But we also have a huge uh, group in existing buildings in our New York City office. So we have a lot of people trying to comply with local laws or doing commissioning or retro commissioning. Um, so I'd say most of our work is through building owners, architects, developers, really boots on the ground, working directly with people who either own, develop, design buildings. Um, and then we do have some work where it's more supported by government and research, um, but I would not say that's the, the core of our work. So some of the yeah. programs that we do support, you know, that's through um, EPA. So I've been doing support, technical support for the EPA through their Energy Star program since about 2008. So 15 years. Um, and so recently, the last couple of years, we've also uh, started doing technical support for EPA's Indoor Air Plus program. So I'd say those are kind of the two main government programs that I'm aware of that we do. Our company is so big that I don't always know what everybody else is doing. Um, but those are kind of the government contracts that we have right now yeah do you even know everybody uh we just had a company meeting last two weeks ago and definitely met some some new faces i have not met all 130 people for sure yeah yeah that uh that happened uh with my former company as well and it's it was a little off-putting i guess to some extent um being an owner and not knowing everybody is kind of weird i thought um there so it's a struggle, growing pains, I guess, um, there. So you are a um, principal mechanical engineer at Stephen Winter. Um, is that really yep. what you do? Well, I am a mechanical engineer because I have a master's degree in mechanical engineering. And okay. so our company has gone through a few variations of, of titles, um, trying to organize our groups, reorganize our groups. And when you create tiers of people, you know, I've been there for, 18 years. And so you had to get creative with your titles. Um, I So we have a group of, you know, sustainability directors, we have energy engineers, building energy and analysts. So one of the titles uh, set up were for subject matter experts was principal something. So I'm a principal mechanical engineer because my background is in mechanical engineer. And I've reached the stage in the company where I'm considered a subject matter expert. Okay. Um, so you don't you haven't been doing mechanical engineering for a while or oh correct yes I am not an HVAC designer so I don't have even a PE um, my master's degree in mechanical engineering is primarily because I did a my thesis in solar energy um, and that just happened to be housed in the mechanically mechanical yeah. engineering department at the University of Wisconsin um, yeah. so a piece of paper says I have a master's degree. <laughs> In mechanical engineering but i'm not really yeah. you know I'm, i don't do any kind of mechanical electrical plumbing design work at all great so let's uh let's go backwards first and then we'll go forward again um i like to i like to learn more about how you became an engineer and got that interest in uh your pathway to stephen winter okay um let's see i will have to blame i guess 
my father. So my father is also a mechanical engineer. My brother is also an engineer. So I'm guessing just genetically I came um, with a, a disposition for liking math and science. And so, you know, all through high school, like math and science, went to Penn State for undergrad. I actually liked math so much that I thought I should be a math major. Uh, and so I pursued a math major for my freshman year. And then realize math majors, there's no numbers. Once you become a math ma major, everything becomes letters. And so I started hating math because it was only about letters and derivations. And so I wanted to do more applied math. And so I got into engineering science. So engineering science at Penn State um, offered you a way to try all the engineering. So electrical engineering, you took coursework in aerospace, industrial, every you know type of engineering until you figure out what you like best. Um, I even did biomedical engineering. And so definitely engineering, was a great fit for me because I, I like to solve problems. And so after Penn State, I went to the typical Penn State career fair looking for a job. Everyone in the engineering department usually gets a, a job with like General Electric or GM or some big corporation will come to the Penn State career fair. And yeah. none of that really spoke to me whatsoever. And so I did see a booth for the Peace Corps. So I joined the United States Peace Corps right after wow. college. Um, it was a two year volunteer commitment. And so when you apply for the Peace Corps, you basically pick areas of the of the world that you're willing to go to and subject matters that you think you could contribute. And so I yeah. did education. Um, I thought I could teach math or science. Um, I picked, I think, Africa, the South Pacific. Um, those are the regions I said I would go to or South America. And so I was actually slated to go to the Solomon Islands in the South Pacific to do two years of education. Um, and probably three weeks before my, my journey was supposed to begin, they had to cancel it due to unrest in East Timor. And so the only next available option was Antigua. And I actually didn't even know where Antigua was, but it was youth development work in Antigua. I actually assumed it was a Spanish speaking country. And so I was excited because I had a minor in Spanish, but turns out it was actually just a beautiful Caribbean island. And so I spent two years on a beautiful Caribbean island where, you know, it's an English dialect, um, but youth development work. I taught math for a, a boys' detention center. I taught computers to teachers. I taught literacy to the kids in my neighborhood. So it was two years. It was awesome. It was a really great yeah. experience. Came back. Um, I had a fellowship that expired within five years, so I needed to use it. And so I used it to do my master's uh, degree at the University of Wisconsin. I chose that university because it was the it was known to have the oldest solar lab in the country. And so that's where I wanted to go. And I could use my fellowship yeah. to go anywhere. I learned when I was at Penn State, I'd done a summer abroad in in Australia, the University of New South Wales, and it was called Energy Beyond 2000. So that's mm -hmm. how old I am. Yeah. So back then, that was very cool. That's a very cool title for a six week summer abroad in Australia where we learned all about renewable energy you know, in Outback. We went to Darwin and uh, study in Sydney. And so I knew I wanted to get into something related to renewable energy, solar energy. So that's why I did my thesis there. After that, again, couldn't really find a job that spoke to me. And so I started uh, another volunteer stint as a teacher, um, high school geometry in the inner city public schools of Baltimore. Wow. And so I probably did that about three quarters before I realized I was terrible at it. It was very hard. It was the hardest thing I've ever done to try to teach geometry, a state tested subject to students who could not even do their times tables. And so they couldn't even hold a protractor without tearing through the paper. And so it was something I was just not 
successful at. I was not feeling good about this choice. And I thought maybe I should go back to mechanical engineering and, and try and save the planet, right? Maybe, maybe my effort would be best spent in something that I think I could do better. I just felt like I was failing as a teacher. And so I found Stephen Winter through my father. Again, he's an engineer. He had attended some conference in Syracuse on high performance buildings. And he had seen that on the agenda was Stephen Winter Associates. And so I applied to join them right from, you know, Baltimore still teaching, applied. Uh, I applied to a position in DC since it was closer. It wasn't the right fit for me. And so they passed my um, resume up to Stephen Winter and Diane Griffiths, who were out of the Connecticut office. And so uh, they had an engineer call me and I got the job and I started that job back in 2005. Great. Have have you regretted your decision at all, or you're very happy with how things turned out? Very happy. Um, you know, it's funny. It took three quarters to like gain the trust of those kids that I was teaching, and so it was kind of sad that I finally, when I made the decision to leave, I'd only just figured out how to reach them. But yeah. I don't think I could have handled it. Being a teacher is such a hard job. Um, I was volunteering at my my daughter's school today, and I just can't imagine doing that all day. It definitely takes very special people, and I realize I am I'm not that special. So I went back to the engineering and thought, yes. So ne never look back with any kind of regret. I love this company. I feel very fortunate that I found this company. I found, you know, I didn't just find a job. I actually found my career, and so that's very lucky for me to be, you know, to have done that just at the age of 25 to, to go to your first company and find out that this is actually your, your career for the rest of your life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you remember your first project? Oh, um, I don't remember my very first project, but I knew I was hired to at least support one of the engineers in my office, um, Rob Aldrich on a, um, a solar installation evaluation in Long Island. And so that must have been one of my first, the earliest projects. Uh, and so we had to go, you know, boots on the ground, get out to Long Island from Connecticut and evaluate installations to make sure they were installed correctly, if they're still performing, things like that. I would say the other project um, was to actually do energy modeling on a building that ultimately went on to be the first Energy Star certified multifamily mm -hmm. high rise in the whole country. Yeah. And so that was back before that actually everything I've done at Steven Winter, I feel like has just been a, a stepping stone on my on my pathway. Everything has led to where I am. And so doing the energy model for that building, directly being involved, kind of led me, you know, to help this building get Energy Star certification, but then also led me to 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 become the technical support contractor for the EPA as they kept developing that Energy Star multifamily program. Um, yeah. So it was a good experience. It was also mostly because no, nobody in my office wanted to learn yet a new energy modeling software. And so it was treat software and nobody wanted to learn it. And so I said, they gave it to me. I was a new person. And so that's how I got involved in that. Very cool. Well, well shout out to uh, Rob uh, because uh, he, uh, his group and uh, Building Beyond podcast that uh, Stephen Winter does uh, got me into uh, wanting to try a podcast. So oh, great. I appreciate that. Um, let's see. So you're working with multifamily buildings and it seems like that's become your specialty. Um, it has, is... I think because of that very first, you know, of my first two projects, one was multifamily. And again, because most people in that Connecticut office were focused on single family through building America. So back then building America, we had a big grant 
Um, mm -hmm. And so if you'd asked me how much we do in government work back then, I would have said, I'd given you a different answer. Most of our work was for Building America. So the Department of Energy, uh, we were a research team. And so we did lots of single family work. And so I think that was another reason nobody wanted to do multifamily because everyone's wheelhouse was single family. And so again, give it to the new girl and she can take care of it. So I was always doing multifamily. And I think that's why my interest has remained there. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, what about multifamily uh, really interests you, do you think? Oh, I don't think there was anything specific. I think it was just what was given to me. And then that became my area of expertise. Honestly, it wasn't because I liked, I didn't gravitate to that building type specifically. Um, single family homes are, are cool and fun to look at and you can um, relate to them. I mean, I did own a multifamily apartment, a condo. Um, so I could kind of relate my experiences as a condo owner to the work mm -hmm. I was doing. Um, I think what feels fulfilling about staying in multifamily is that most of our clients are affordable housing developers. And so you know that every project that you work on, every requirement that you develop is influencing some building to be more energy efficient, which ultimately supports the residents that will live there. So I think that's probably, I probably got into it for no specific reason, just because somebody else, somebody needed to take on multifamily new construction and there wasn't anybody else. I probably yeah. stayed in it because there's a lot of impact on the work that we do in that space. Yeah. Uh, multifamily developers, uh, it, that's the, it seems like that's the, the place to be right now. Uh, there's lots of incentive money and, and whatnot out there for them to do something beyond uh, code and beyond, um, I guess, what they would normally be thinking about uh, because of the cost effectiveness of, of just the cost of, of building in, in, in that sector. Um, do you think there's a specific reason why um, that sector of building is being concentrated on for these programs like Energy Star, Passive House, uh, other types of rebates that are out there for them? Uh, I'd only be guessing, but I think that market just happens to be booming, probably because the price of home ownership is out of reach for most people. So uh, mm -hmm. if more people are gravitating to multifamily housing because that's what they can afford, that's the type of housing stock that's going up. And you have two options, either do it cheap and fast and code compliant, or you actually do something. So that's the market that is booming. And so I think yeah. that's what is driving folks to say, hey, we're going to see a lot more of these buildings go up and this is our chance to drive them to be better. And so that would be yeah. my my guess as a mechanical engineer, since I don't do market research. Yeah. I, I wonder if it's uh, a bit of a chicken and egg thing, though, because it seems like uh, the housing authorities and whatnot are are incentivizing funding based based off of these programs so you almost can't do a program and finance these types of projects where in, in the same way the the funding for uh market rate uh multifamily building isn't being incentivized in the same way yeah i would say that you know our experience at least in connecticut is that you know, to access funding. Again, we don't do a lot of market rate. So market rate and how that yeah. is, is going is not my my expertise. But the affordable housing, I think we saw directly in Connecticut, once the state finance office started pointing to programs like Energy Star, and then the one year they they suddenly said, you get this many points for Passive House. 
we saw a direct yeah. connection to how many buildings went after passive house because if you went after passive house you would get the construction funding you needed to build your project and so yeah. that definitely drove buildings to get passive house and they ultimately figure out how to do it in their budgets and so ultimately what we have in connecticut is a lot more high performance you know passive house energy star buildings because those are the types of projects that actually get funded. So market rate, I have no idea how that works, but yeah. um, we're also seeing similar in Massachusetts, right? That's why yeah. they have more passive house projects because either the code requires it or it's essentially needed to get funded. Otherwise you're never gonna get funded. Yeah, I think that's very, very true uh, as well. Um, are you seeing any interest in the DOE Zero Energy Ready Home Program in multifamily because of the, the new, um, structure of the 45L tax credit? Yes, I think we're definitely gonna see, we see a lot of interest. Everyone sees all the big money and they're very excited about it. There's just too yeah. many questions at this point and I definitely don't have any answers. Um, but I think it is going to have a high impact. I think we are gonna see a lot of builders, even maybe some of those market rate builders that usually don't come after this kind of money. Um, we might see yeah. some of them actually come into the mix trying to get this funding, which will push them to be higher performing. But all the affordable housing developers, this is, you know, they were going to do kind of these certifications anyways, but now they can actually make it pencil out because there's funding associated. It's just a question of when they get the financing and if they can work it into how they finance construction because the tax credit comes so late. Um, yeah. But I think we, it is going to drive projects to this. Yeah. And just in case uh, people don't know, the 45L tax credit is for new construction. Uh, $2,500 for the Energy Star certification and $5,000 for the DOE Zero Energy Ready Home certification. And that's per dwelling unit, correct? Um, I believe so. In multifamily, it can it can add up. Uh, it, I'm pretty sure it's per dwelling unit. Uh, so in multifamily construction, it can add up, you know, pretty Quickly. substantially um, there. Um, yeah, so... Um, you you mentioned that you're working with uh, Energy Star uh, and in their multifamily program. What what does that mean when you say you're you're helping them uh, develop their program? Okay, so probably back um, they launched a pilot, a multifamily high-rise pilot, back around 2005. And so when I first started at SWA, that was the reason I was modeling this building was they were running a pilot for the first Energy Star multifamily high-rise program um, in conjunction with NYSERDA in New York State. And so that pilot program must have resulted in some kind of RFP or something prior around 2008 that we went after as a company to, to become a technical consultant to the EPA on Energy Star programs. And so that's the, the contract that we won and that's how I got started as a technical contractor for them. Um, and so since 2008, supported that multifamily high-rise program in its pilot phase that eventually became the official Energy Star multifamily program back in, I guess, 2011. So ran that multifamily program because there was always this Energy Star certified homes program, but it always was stopped at the four or five story height, right? So you know this, but for your, for your audience here, um, single family homes and low rise multifamily homes are part of the residential code, not commercial code. So Energy Star, you know, had primarily been a single family home certification opportunity. And so somebody along the way must have said, well, what about low rise multifamily? They're held to the same requirements in the code. Can't they also access this label? 
And so there mm -hmm. must've been a decision to say, yes, yes, they can, but yeah. it's the same requirements. We're not gonna change our requirements. You meet them as a multifamily building, you can get the same label. And again, there must've been some you know, requests for four story and five story buildings, but that got a little uncomfortable because four and five story buildings are part of the commercial code. And so this Energy Star multifamily high rise pilot was intended to meet the needs of commercial multifamily high rise. So that means four story and up subject to commercial code. And so that's kind of where we started. And so we had two kind of divergent Energy Star programs because it was following very different modeling pathways. So the commercial code doesn't use the typical energy rating software that most you know single family HERS raters would know about. It uses ASHRAE 90.1, very robust whole building modeling. Um, so the pads for those two programs ended up being so divergent. At the end of the day, we kind of wanted to bring them all back together. And instead of saying mm -hmm. multifamily, three stories and less do this and four story and up do this, why? You know, what is the reason? We, we can't even explain yeah. the reason of why it's in the residential and commercial code, um, why they decided multifamily. And there's been um, opportunities to try and treat multifamily different, either bringing them into one code, either bring it all the way into residential or bring it all the way to commercial instead of splitting it at that three-story height. They've been mostly yeah. unsuccessful. Um, but we decided back around 2011 that we wanted to set it up so that multifamily could be treated the same, whether it's one story or five story. And let's focus our requirements on the unique attributes of the building and not just randomly say our requirements and program structure is gonna be different if you're four stories. And so we made that decision back in 2011, started this multifamily working group for ResNet actually, I believe you were part of that. Uh -huh. um, and we offered to ResNet that we would expand upon their calculations and provide them a set of guidelines for how to model multifamily with the idea that one day they would also stop this cap at three stories. And so that work happened back in 2012, ultimately led to them saying, yes, we're gonna you know, include this in our upcoming standard because they were at that same time, they were trying to create an ANSI standard. So all this is happening at the same time, but that was, it was a very long time in the making, getting multifamily all together in this new multifamily program we have for Energy Star. Yeah. But that first hurdle was, how do we get them to have the same modeling protocols? So we had to start way back 11 years ago to start the wheels in motion to say, yes, this energy rating standard that works for single family homes and low rise multifamily now has the right words in it. So it can use, it can be applied to an apartment in a 10 story building, just the same as if it was two story. So with that in play, we started also working on Energy Star's new multifamily program, which that, that launched back in 2019, so about four years ago, um, which was this option for multifamily to not have to follow the single family homes program. Here's a program that kind of mirrors it. It looks exactly the same in terms of all the program documents are very similar. Um, it's just, there's no requirements that change at the three-story height. If you want to do ASHRAE modeling, do it. However tall your building is, do it. If you want to do ERI, energy rating, you know, ERI, HERS index modeling, do that on any height building. If you don't want to do modeling at all, do prescriptive. That was something that was never offered in the Energy Star single family homes world. Yeah. Um, it just wasn't a popular path. It kind of was when it was called the builder option packages, but I think they were just so, um, not, they just weren't popular. Nobody used them. And so they stopped developing them or maintaining them. Whereas in multifamily, it was actually uh, an option used by some affordable housing clients where they just don't have the, the funds to pay for energy modeling. They just want somebody to say, 
what do I prescriptively need to build that will make me an above code building? And I just want to do those mm -hmm. prescriptive things. And so, yeah, since, you know, 2019 helped develop that program. And then since developing and launching it, it's just constant support, training, webinars, answering technical questions, uh, multifamily, every multifamily building brings us a new configuration that we haven't thought about. Um, and so we have to revisit many of our requirements based on feedback that we get from partners based on a very unique way that they've constructed their multifamily building. And so that's still ongoing today, right? It's the same multifamily new construction program. Um, that's the one that's referenced in the tax credit. Uh, it's available to all multifamily buildings, all heights, new construction. Um, existing and gut rehabs can participate if they want, but there's no, there's very few accommodations, right? So we want it to be a new construction label. Uh, we don't prevent gut rehabs or existing buildings from participating, but they do get held to the same new construction requirements. Uh, within the multifamily uh, Energy Star program, are you uh, labeling dwelling units or are you labeling the building? So the entire building, so if you had a 100 unit multifamily building, the way the Energy Star multifamily program is structured is that all the dwelling units have to meet the certification requirements. It can be done through sampling, mm -hmm. but every unit essentially is meeting the requirements. And so every unit receives its own label so it, can, it has the same blue sticky label that goes on the electrical panel. They each one get their own paper certificate. And the building actually also gets a certificate. And so the building owner at the end of the project can actually have their certificate. They can have their templates for them to build out a uh, Energy Star plaque. We have a lot of buildings that like to put an Energy Star plaque on their, yeah. you know, the lobby or at the door or something. So the dwelling units are certified but it's really the building that's also being certified. So you get labels on both. Yeah. How often do you see central uh, mechanicals or, or dwelling unit specific mechanicals? Um, I think it depends, right? So in our area in New York City, you're gonna see a lot of central, um, but we have started seeing a push towards unitized like package thermal heat pumps because we're getting higher performance um, package thermal heat pumps. Uh, hot water tends to still be centralized in New York City. So I think it depends on your location. So our mid-Atlantic yeah. projects in, in the DC, Virginia area, uh, those still tend to be very residential, you know, you know, uh, air handlers and their own condenser um, if they haven't gone to mini splits. So I think it really depends on the building type. We see more central in our cities and, and less so kind of in the suburban or mid-Atlantic area. Yeah. I was just called out to a multifamily building where they used dwelling unit specific uh, heat pump water heaters. Okay. And I think part of part of the issue um, is that is the space. They yes. they didn't allocate enough space for the unit, so the unit wasn't running in heat pump mode, and the the utility bills for that particular unit were skyrocketing. Um, this is. A problem, yes. Yeah, we talk about yeah. this problem a lot. And so yeah. uh, heat pump water heaters in multifamily, we talk about it so much so that we actually asked our local utility um, to allow us to write guidelines for them. And so this is probably about five years ago where we, we do have this fear that it's very easy in your energy modeling software to, to type in an energy factor or UEF right now of heat pump water heater, 3.5, right? Yeah. and run away with savings. You know, your scores are yeah. so good 
that's very simple to do that. But as you're pointing out, the installation matters. And so um, we wrote guidelines for that local utility saying, you know, this is what these are the best practices. You're going to need enough space. You're going to have to consider sound. Um, you have to make sure if you're ducting the air, you know, where is that air going to go? Um, it's going to be cold air. So a lot of, you know, best practices in there. And so they kind of incorporated those guidelines into their incentive structure. They have an incentive structure for new construction. If you do, uh, they reference a HERS index. So they have a HERS index of this score, you get a certain amount. Um, but they have this nice little footnote that says, if you don't follow these guidelines, you actually have to model it as an electric resistance water heater. Because as you said, it's probably going to switch back to electric resistance yeah. if it doesn't have mm -hmm. enough space or if the tenant thinks it's too loud and they just manually switch it back. Um, so I have struggled with this. There, there isn't a good answer yet for how to do this in multifamily, um, unless you're doing the commercial central heat pump water heaters. But I would love to see um, a design solution for for these integrated. You're talking about the integrated heat pump water heaters that are yeah. storage. Um, we need a simple solution there. Yeah. Is that footnote part of the Energy Star multifamily program as well? It is not. It is not. Um, with their next gen program, I think they do have some language in there about heat pump water heaters in terms of um, it might be recommendations. I'd actually have to look that up. Um, but we are trying to move people towards better installation. So I know in the ResNet standard, ANSI 301, we have started working on an amendment um, on heat pump water heaters. I don't know when we'll put it out, but it's trying to address this issue of, you know, if you install it correctly, kind of like HVAC grading or insulation grading, I'd kind of like to see some kind of grading uh, associated with it. So if you install it, meeting manufacturer's installation requirements or whatever best practices, um, if you do that, it has a higher chance of performing. And so you get to use a full UEF. If you don't do those things, why don't we derate that UEF? Kind of like the grading, but some kind of derate factor. So I'd like to see something like that happen, um, but we need to kind of get that amendment written up and, yeah. and out to public comment. Yeah. Uh, just in case people don't know, ResNet is the Residential Energy Services Network. They kind of govern the energy rating uh, index score, and the, they developed the ANSI Standard 301, which is the standard that um, is used to uh, consistently develop the and, and energy rating index scores, not necessarily specific to uh, ResNet anymore. So it seems like um, your work with Energy Star really uh, began your your probably your discussions to do some work with ResNet uh, as yes. well. And, and actually, you're so can you describe right. what you do with ResNet? Sure. And so back in 2012 when I was working for Energy Star and they had a long-term plan to create modeling that works for multifamily. We volunteered to, you know, we went to a ResNet conference and we volunteered to create guidelines and you were part of that multifamily working group. And so those guidelines became part of the standard. And so in the course of that happening, um, ResNet had created their own standards development committee because they were developing ANSI standards. And so they had an envelopes committee, an equipment subcommittee, and a modeling subcommittee. Um, but they didn't have a multifamily subcommittee. And so they saw our working group, you know, being productive. Um, so they created a, a multifamily subcommittee. And so I was chairing that subcommittee with some of the multifamily working group members. Um, eventually the chair of that committee, uh, Brett Dillon, needed a vice chair. And so he had asked me to become the vice chair. And then when he stepped down, I became the chair of that standards development committee. And so that is how I went from the Energy Star work to being interested in the ResNet work.
because you needed somebody to champion it in both spaces. And so, you know, to move forward a standard and make sure it has all the multifamily requirements in it, we'd already done the legwork to know what the language should be, but um, there's a lot of process required to get a standard updated. And so they needed a lot of coordination. And so by being chair and being able to coordinate with the, the heads of those subcommittees, as well as understanding what I wanted for multifamily, um, kind of led me to that role and has kept me in that role. So I'm still actually the chair of that standards development committee for ResNet. Great. Do you enjoy that? I do. It's <laughs> funny. A lot of people ask me about the work that I do and they're like, do you like it? And I was like, I'm not sure how to answer <laughs> that question sometimes. Uh, I feel like I'm good at it. I feel like somebody needs to do it and certain people should not do it. And so when I say it like that, it's because I have a, I don't have an interest, right? So there's no financial interest for me to be the chair mm -hmm. of ResNet SCC 300. So I think that's important. Um, chairs are not supposed to be biased. You know, they should have kind of ag agnostic look when they're developing standards. Uh, and yeah. so I've seen some other committees with chairs that might not have agnostic viewpoints. And so I think that's tough. So I feel like one of my skill sets is being able to take off various hats when I need to. And so while my personal hat that I would wear is very high performance, energy efficiency, climate change scares the hell out of me and we need to do more. Sometimes yeah. I have to take that hat off and remember that the ResNet standard is just a, a, a simple standard that evaluates energy performance. It's not a doomsday standard. It is just a standard that evaluates performance. And then when I go to Energy Star, I can put a different hat on where I'm just trying to do above code buildings. I think because I can do that, I stay in those roles. Um, and I feel, again, it comes back to being happy. I feel fulfilled in all the projects that I do. So if that's yeah. the same as being happy, I would say I'm happy. <laughs> yeah. Um, as an observer, I think you also have a unique skill to be able to uh, understand the, the totality of something and, yes. and not forget about all those things. You know, I, I tend to focus on one thing and forget about, you know, the consequence over here, or over there, whatnot. And uh, that that skill um, is really, it seems to be really helpful um, in your ability to manage these these big projects. Yeah, I think especially, I think we'll probably, that's a good segue into like how I got from EP, Energy Star to ResNet to code development. But yeah. through the Energy Star program, you know, that was kind of how I started learning to develop this skill because we did hear from all sorts of people. We heard from the builder stakeholder who says, this is too hard, this is too expensive. We heard from the boots on the ground raider verifier who said, this requirement isn't written the way I can actually verify it. We heard from the, you know, the affordable housing finance office folks, the people like um, green, energy, enterprise green communities, the people that look to Energy Star yeah. to set the bar. And so we were being, you know, pulled in multiple directions that whole time. And so you always had to listen. You always had, because I, I firmly believe there's always middle ground. That if, I, if I listen to somebody long enough, I can understand what the actual pain point is. And I'm, I'm always maybe overly confident that I can find a resolution to that pain point. Um, I think some people just has a, have a knee jerk reaction to something they don't want to do. And so they just flat out don't want to do it. And they say they don't want to do it. But if you can get them to talk a little bit about why they don't want to do it yeah. or why is it hard, 
you can usually find a solution um, that's still making progress, but still recognizes their concern. Because I think most people do have valid concerns. And I do think sometimes in the code development world, at least, um, people have kind of gone onto their into their corners and it's hard for them yeah. to to listen to people if they're standing in that other corner but usually they have a reasonable objection and so it shouldn't be dismissed and so because i've come into the code development world i think late in the game compared to other folks such as yourself um i was kind of a newbie and so i didn't have a corner so i just walked around to everybody's cor corners to ask them what they thought um and it was useful i thought it was useful yeah uh, so uh, let's segue into <laughs> code. Um, what what was your interest in in moving to code and uh, in, in beginning to do some work there? Yeah, honestly, I blame um, a former SWA colleague, Stephen Winter colleague, his name is Sean Maxwell. Um, basically, he had this, you know, he, he was really um, focused on compartmentalization testing. Um, and he was really annoyed about how multifamily buildings were still tethered to this um, volume-based Florador test, where here's your ACH 50, test it like a single-family home, and this is your number. Um, so he had, you know, this chance to influence the New York City code. And so he, I don't even know how he got interested in code development, but he put forward a proposal for the New York City code. And then because it got passed, to introduce compartmentalization as a metric for multifamily, he mm -hmm. he got overly confident with his his success there and proposed it for the 2018 IECC. And then this guy moves to Australia. Oh, yeah. So he moves to Australia and he says, "Hey, Gaia three, I have this proposal, a code change proposal. Um, can you go defend it for me at the 2018 IECC public comment hearings? I think that was in." That must have been October 2016, Kansas City. I had never done anything like this before in my life. And I was like, yeah, I think compartmentalization, that's important. Yeah, this is something I know. I can speak easily about this. To me, this was a slam dunk, no brainer. Why would anyone argue with having this metric in the code? And you were there at that code hearing. Um, and I failed miserably because I didn't understand the process. And so I go up there thinking this is gonna be a slam dunk. And then everyone is lining up to speak against me. And so honestly, it's because I don't take losing well. And that's why I stayed in code development. So I was very committed to convincing those six people. And I remember their names. I wrote them down, went back and found them, said what was the problem, um, and then patiently waited for the next code cycle and worked with them, including you, to create a consensus proposal. Right? We had so many different people on that consensus proposal when we finally brought it back for the 2021 code cycle and succeeded. And so I think at that point, I started realizing the rules of code development and how these public comment hearings and committee action hearings worked. And so I did a couple other proposals. And so starting to feel like how those, you know, were heard and approved, uh, I realized I could have a greater impact on the building industry by getting changes into the energy code. And so when the call for applications back in 2021 came out to actually have a seat at the table, right? So those public comment yeah. hearings were always kind of frustrating for me because you go there, you know, everything you're saying is true, but it doesn't matter if the code official or the government, you know, voter doesn't agree with you. And so they're the ones voting, even though I think I have a better plan forward. Um, yeah. So it's very exciting to finally have a seat at the table where my vote counted. 
And so I was very excited and about you, that. You only had two minutes to convince them. Oh yeah, <laughs> that two minute part was very hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you think, so I, I don't know who knows or doesn't know, but might be listening, but the whole process of uh, code development has changed from a hearing process where you can speak to a proposal that you might have made for about two minutes and, right. and then respond kind of back and forth uh, to an ANSI process, uh, a consensus committee process. Uh, what do you think about the new process? Uh, do you like it better? I think, worse? <laughs> I think, yes. <laughs> I like it better and I like it worse. Yeah. So there's pros and cons. I think everyone knew that going into this because of, um, I also participated in ASHRAE standard committees. And so I could see the downside from participating in ASHRAE committees of the ANSI standard development process. It is slow and people that seem to know the process the best seem to have the best success. And so that's frustrating mm -hmm. to me as a newcomer into the codes and standards development world to be losing arguments because of process. Yeah. Um, and so I was hesitant that we would get into this situation and we would lose that benefit of being locked in some giant conference room for two weeks and having an outcome, right? They didn't let you leave some nights until midnight. You're like, well, we have to yeah. get it done. So I did kind of appreciate the finite nature of that. Um, this process has taken a lot more hours. And I think yeah. um, all the voting members can agree that this is very time consuming. And so this, I don't think this process in this way is sustainable, um, but it does lend itself to more consensus building, right? So when you went up to the podium for two minutes to speak your case, and then somebody next to you said something, you're like, oh, wow, I could have resolved that objection had I only heard it on the side when we were together sharing a, a screen where I could have created a floor mod that would have resolved that person. You don't get that kind of opportunity and you don't know who's working on public comments, right? So it's a little harder yeah. to know who's working on things. So I feel like this has afforded us the opportunity to know who's who and actually reach out to them and talk to them and say, hey, why don't we work on a proposal together? So if we can figure out how to decrease the amount of time it's gonna take, I think it does have the opportunity, that is the positive side of this approach is that the consensus building opportunity is better. Yeah, as, as or if uh, the 2024 becomes uh, a standard code, um, would, would that time commitment change in, in that it's moving into a uh, continual maintenance? of that code and rather than in essence it seems like in the standard development process we're basically creating the the starting point standard even though we had the 2021 to as as the true starting point right so i i don't think we know the answer yet so right now i think the plan would be to publish the 2024 iecc just in the same way that the 2021 iecc was published before and yeah. so now the question is, will there be continuous maintenance where somebody can propose an amendment to 2024 ICC and we actually hear it and start working on it right away as they do on ASHRAE standards or ANSI standards? So typically that is what continuous maintenance means. I am not sure if that's definitely how it's gonna happen. The other option is periodic maintenance. 
where you hold the changes and just do them every three years. You can still be an ANSI standard and do it that way. Um, yeah. So, I mean, me personally, I would probably prefer to keep it frozen for three years and just do periodic maintenance, even though it is a significant higher um, use of time for that two years, right? So I would imagine that sometime next year, we're gonna have the call for proposals for 2027. So you basically only get one year off um, yeah. and then you start up again. But if we had to do continuous maintenance where you're doing amendments all the time, that is the ASHRAE world right now. It is a lot of work. You can see some of the ASHRAE addendums get out to like double letter amendments, right? They're up to like AA or AB, like it's a lot. Um, yeah. So I don't think that saves any more time. Yeah. It, it, the, the frustrating part in all of it is that it, it's not only time consuming to do the work, but to, to get any actual change, you know, takes three years before you actually do it so yes but that is i can see your point years. where so many people want to change very small parts of the code including myself um <laughs> that you you know you would have to have an addendum for one small change in the air barrier air ceiling table for example right and so i think you anyone who's listening that's part of the resnet rating industry can empathize with the fact that it's hard to keep track of all those amendments as well. So not only the yeah. time it takes to develop them, but then what is the outcome of that? The outcome of that is you have a standard and oh, by the way, here's 16 ways we've amended it since then. And some of them overlap because there are some of them are in the same section. Yeah. So I think it's harder actually to have to juggle those amendments at the same time, rather than just saying, this is the book. This is the book for three years. And then three years from now, will change it um yeah yeah Pros and cons. is there any hybrid uh do you think approach where the the code book would still be published every three years but maybe sections are are broken out and you have consensus committees you know similar to what we have now in, in the process for each each section uh, and then you come back in that third year to pull it all together and publish it in essence. Well, I think but, what would, off the top of my head, I think the only kind of solution would be that if, right, because you know that every state adopts a frozen book at some point. Yeah. And so I think the only thing that's kind of the middle ground would be if we did do a continuous maintenance where we are started, we're looking at amendments, you know, every, every time they're submitted instead of just like this block window, right? So they come yeah. rolling in, it's continuous maintenance, we hear them, um, I would say there could be something where it's like a batch of amendments. So let's say it's quarterly. So we've heard 12 amendments that came through. We batched them all together. This is the first addenda to the 2024 ICC includes all these whatever dozen changes. And so that would have to just be sitting there, not part of the published document because it's a frozen document that the, the state codes reference. But let's say sometime next year, or 2025, let's say the state, some state decides to adopt the 2024, but we have this amendment out there, they could consider it. And so then when they adopt the 2024, they could say 2024 with this one amendment. So that would be a way for them to have the latest and greatest, um, but it's probably easier said than done because I'm pretty sure most of these subcommittees don't want to keep meeting yeah. forever. <laughs> yeah, that's true. 
Um, I wanted to ask about kind of the blending of the energy code and um, ResNet's anti-standard 301. Okay. Uh, we find we've in the past, you know, few years since since it got into the code, we've had this problem of the uh, energy codes, energy rating index, and the HERS ResNet energy rating index not necessarily being the same number yep. for uh, the same house. So uh, a lot of jurisdictions have consciously tried to adopt the 2021 by first amending out the ventilation um, amendment Equation. in the body of the code to try okay. to bring the two scores together. But they, and then maybe um, not referencing a specific version of the standard to try to bring, so that they can in essence use the, the ResNet HERS energy rating index uh, for their compliance. Do you have any recommendation for jurisdictions on how to do that if they want to actually use the HERS energy rating index um, rather than the code energy rating index, but use the rest of the language in the code for the R406, how you implement it and whatnot? Right. So the only state that I know that has successfully done that is Massachusetts. So um, somehow, whatever they've done is okay, technically or, or typically you can't reference the ResNet HERS index in the energy code. So maybe each state is slightly different. Maybe each state has slightly different rules, but somehow Massachusetts has been able to use the HERS index and kind of um, remove the discrepancy between doing something that is strictly an ERI calculated in accordance with 301 and R406, because um, those will always get out of sync, no matter what, even regardless of that ventilation rate, right? So there was a modification to change yeah. how the ERI in the code back in the 2018, 2021, those yeah. two have this ventilation um, change that will be gone in 2024, but you will still eventually see differences based on the time of adoption. And so the example there is if somebody is doing a HERS index right now, HERS index is calculated using a 2019 standard right this second. The second a state adopts 2024, let's say next year, they will be using a newer version of the ANSI standard. So uh, it's the timing issue that it is hard to resolve. And so those numbers will likely be off unless there's some kind of change that the when the code adopts it to say, keep them in sync like you were suggesting. Yeah. Well, what, could you do... I, this is always my problem with with uh, uh, code and code development is that I don't use uh, proper code language probably 99% of the time. And I'm guessing we can't say something like you utilize the most recent version of right. standard 301. Uh, so that we can't do in the main body of the energy code. Right, so that would be up to raters, like HERS raters really need to be empowered to participate in their state's adoption process. And so if raters go to the state adoption process and start participating and say, hey, I can see that you're about to adopt the 2024, um, and they could propose something there that says, we, want you, we know that the ANSI standard 301 is the 2022 version of it, we know, 
that it's been amended five times. We would like you to include those five amendments. So it would really take the Raiders being involved and then that would work. Unfortunately, it's out of sync the moment and the next amendment comes up, right? So the problem with energy codes is they are fixed in time for usually about three years. So anything that happens in those three years. So on the resident side, the option is to just say, we're not gonna adopt these amendments, right? But they can't follow every state's energy code. So there'd have to be something very clever, either in the code adoption or in the ResNet standards. That, and I think we have some language that's been developed that way um, that allows ResNet standards to produce official HERS ratings um, using different years of the standards, right? Right now we're in yeah. 2019, but I think they're kind of recognizing that it's still a HERS rating and can be uploaded to the registry. Um, even if maybe it's not using the 2019 right now, because that's going to happen next year when people start using 2022 for code. Is it still a HERS rating? Yeah, it's still a HERS rating. Um, so I think that's kind of the flexibility that has to be worked out. Yeah. There, there, I think uh, Ryan Mears at, at ResNet might be working on some language that jurisdictions can adopt that bring bring the two scores into alignment and and whatnot so that's if definitely I can great find... resnet creates like stock language that every raider um can submit during that public comment most states have a public comment period when they adopt an energy yeah. code so if if there's stock language that we know works or has worked like in massachusetts or other states that ryan has worked uh, to support that's great makes it a lot easier yeah, yeah. Great. We have to convince okay. a raider to participate. <laughs> it does, yes, and and everybody to, to participate. Uh, it's, I mean, code is, and and the ANSI process um, for other standards is that's the great thing about it is that anybody can take part, uh, but the people who tend to complain don't take part. So we need to get all those people to to take part um, there. Well, uh, I think we've uh, run out of time here. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, you're a wealth of knowledge and uh, I really appreciate all the, the work that you do in, in all those different arenas. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks for inviting me to, to be on this podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of BuildCast, brought to you by BuildTank, Inc. To see show notes and learn more about our guests and other episodes, visit the BuildCast page of our website at www.btankinc.com. Thank you, Ben Sound, for our music and to Ashley Owen for editing it. And you, for your encouragement and guidance in the creation of BuildCast. You can listen to BuildCast on Anchor, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite platform. If you enjoyed our show and are willing, please take a moment to subscribe and review BuildCast, which will help others find it more easily. Thanks again for listening. And please let us know who you would like to hear next and if you have any suggestions to make BuildCast better. Until next time, be safe and continue to think 0 to 360.